Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Anne Lamott wrote, a friend said mournfully the other day that he'd lived his life like the professor on Gilligan's Island. While he found time to fashion generators out of palm fronds, vaccines out of algae, he never got around to fixing that huge hole in the boat so he could go home. How many people actually do? I guess I need to ask, have y'all seen Gilligan's Island? How many of y'all have seen Gilligan's Island? Nobody over here, nobody over here. Okay, let me do a quick explanation. I'll make this brief. It was a three-hour trip. (laughs) Group of people got on a boat, unlikely candidates on a boat, movie star, what what was her name? Ginger, uh, just a, an average girl, Marianne, um, Gilligan, the skipper, who am I forgetting? The professor, Thurston Howe, the third, rich guy, and uh, something happens, boat gets a hole in it, they get stuck on an island. And so this sitcom emerges of different people, characters coming onto the island, and all of these things that the professor fabricates out of nothing um, just to make life more pleasurable on the island. But he never fixes the boat. And we sort of get trapped in the whole thing, and we forget about the boat, that if you could make a radio out of algae, you could probably fix the boat, right? But for me, reading that, I suddenly realized, and I don't know that the writers of that sitcom really had this in mind, But that's a beautiful illustration of life. I mean, this island, Earth, is our island. And we've got a hole in our boat. But rather than dealing with the important thing, the hole in the boat, and fixing the hole so we can go home, instead, we focus all of our energy and attention on making life meaningful and comfortable on the island, which is exactly what they do, which is exactly what we do, which is the essence of Ecclesiastes. If I had to wrap up Ecclesiastes in a single illustration, I would say it's just like Gilligan's Island. We're trying to find meaning, significance, purpose, and value, fulfillment on an island when we need to be fixing the boat so that we can go home. Last time we looked at Solomon's pursuit of satisfaction, and you know, he can't get no satisfaction. It's like Mick Jagger. And tried it in all the same ways that we do today, you know, money, uh, women, experiences, information, knowledge, all those things, and nothing. He keeps saying, it's, it's, it's vanity and chasing the wind. It's meaningless. Everything keeps coming back around. Meaningless, 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 chasing the wind. And then in verse 12 of chapter 2, he begins to give his conclusions about that journey that he had taken in the search for satisfaction. And, and only the, for me, the idea changes from trying to find satisfaction to explaining how that lacks any meaning. And so it really becomes a testament on the pursuit of meaning. And so let's pick that up in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, get your Bibles out. Let's go there. Turn your devices on and let's read it. I've put most of the text today in the New Living Translation because it's kind of easier to read and understand, Um, but whatever you follow along in. The first thing is this, the modern focus. 
And it's so funny that I would use the word modern focus because the focus that he's talking about was written 3,000 years ago, and yet it's still the same things we deal with. And so he says this, So I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness. And that word madness in the New American Standard is folly. But it's a folly that's tied to uh, the pursuit of pleasure. It's the thoughtless life. It's just the life that is spent on um, just in investing in whatever gratifies your immediate need. And so he calls that foolishness or folly. For who can do this better than I, the king? Because he's already been down this road. And I, I need to say this, for as long as man has wandered the planet, he's tried to find meaning in life. And Solomon looks at all the world systems and everything that culture has tried to produce, and he summarized them into two categories, two broad categories, wisdom and folly, what we would call reason and pleasure. And really, without God in our search for meaning, you're really only left with one of two choices, and it really comes down to these two basic approaches. You find meaning through wisdom, or you find meaning through pleasure. And we see this literally throughout history. I mean, you can see it in the ancient Greeks. In the late 400 to early 300 BCs, there was a fellow whose name you've heard before, Socrates. And Socrates began to believe that man could find meaning through wisdom or knowledge. And so his whole pursuit became uh, a pursuit of investigating the purpose and meaning and significance of life. In fact, his great line that he's quoted, that he's known for is, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so he begins to take apart and examine every phase of his life. His gifted student, Plato, took it a step farther and really bore down on the concept of wisdom and reason. And Plato essentially said that the intellectuals should be the ones who govern everything. Forget about this whole democratic process. Forget about the idea that all men are created equal. The intellectuals are the ones who have examined their lives, and therefore they're the ones best capable of leading. Um. A century after Plato, a fellow named Zeno would sit on his porch and he would pontificate about the essence of life and meaning. Zeno was basically uh, regurgitating the philosophies of Socrates and Plato. And he did it from his porch. The Greek word for porch is stoa, painted porch. And the, the, the philosophy that emerged from Zeno's teaching became not known by Zeno, but by the porch, Stoicism. And Stoicism was the same idea that we have to uh, suppress our passions and desires, we have to subordinate them to our intellectual capability, and we have to Im improve our thinking. And so knowledge is virtue. At the same time Zeno was teaching, there was another guy down the road named Epicurus, a contemporary of Zeno, who stood at the opposite end of the spectrum, and, and Epicurus taught that fulfillment comes through pleasure and not intellect. Now, he differentiates his kind of pleasure from the common pleasure by saying that it's a refined type of pleasure which is the reward of cultured man. And so this kind of pleasure uh, lends itself to high moral values and a word that he used a lot, which was virtue. There was another group of people running around who weren't a part of the philosophical system because they were a part of what Solomon would call folly. They didn't really think about meaning in life. They just sort of reacted to the impulses that were carrying them along. This group of people is known as the hedonist. Have you heard that word before? And the Greek word for pleasure is hedonism. 
And so the hedonists were saying, hey, the Epicureans have it right that it is the pursuit of pleasure, but it, we don't have to get caught up in definitions of what pleasure really is. Pleasure is pleasure, and the more you get, the more you're fulfilled. And so if you really back up and look at our options that are out there, there are really only two. There's wisdom and folly, what Solomon called. There's reason and pleasure. That's really all we have. And it's been around forever. In fact, um, here's an interesting little side note. Remember when Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17? He was in Athens waiting on the ministry team to come and meet him there. And while he was there, Paul being Paul started sharing the gospel with people in the marketplace and all around. Well, word gets out that there's this, seems like a fairly bright guy talking about this person named Jesus, and we need to hear more about that. So the Greeks had a, a way in Athens at that period where if they heard something new, they would drag that fellow up to the area peg as sort of a sort of an opportunity to sort of uh, uh, you know have a have a conference on what this guy's talking about so they can hear it. They love to hear new things. And so they bring him to Mars Hill, the area pegas, sort of like a TED talk, and uh, Paul starts to tell them what he believes. And in verse 18, listen to this. And also, look at this. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, there they are. I mean, that stuff originated 300 years before Paul. But when Paul comes along in 1 AD, it's still the only options out there. It's the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? I love that, you know, because Paul is... Is talking from a, he's talking from a spiritual perspective, and they just couldn't wrap their heads around it, so they, they made fun of him. They called him an idle babbler. That's a word for a little bird that pecks seeds along the roadside. What would this idle babbler say? He seems to be professing strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. I say all that because here's a, here's a tendency of all of us. Every generation thinks that our issues are brand new and unique to us. We think that the problems that we're facing with despair and longing and depression and finding meaning, significance, and purpose are unique to 21st century Western man. We think it, it's, it, we just invented it. When in reality, Solomon wrote this stuff 3,000 years ago. He wrote this stuff 600 years before Socrates and 700 years before Zeno and 1,000 years before Paul runs into him in Athens. I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so these options have been the options we've had for a very long time. And here's what Solomon came to terms with. These are our only two options, and both of them lead to a dead end. They both produce meaningless. Wisdom can't produce meaning because we're limited. We talked about this last time uh, in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 15. He says, what's lacking can't be counted. And, and that, that's a, a clever way of just saying, no matter how much you know, you'll never know it all. And the more we know, the less we know. And the more we know, the more we realize what we don't know. And sometimes our... Our pursuit of wisdom and knowledge can lead us into imbecility because the more we know, the more idiotic we can tend to become. I think a great example of this is Rene Descartes. He's the 
uh, known as the father of Western philosophy. You may have had to read about him in some college class, but he epitomized the problem with knowledge because Descartes said, I'm going to cut through all of the extraneous stuff that we have come to assume, and I'm going to get back to the core by questioning not only what is truth, but how do I know truth? And so Descartes becomes this cynical approach to understanding uh, basic being of life. And it's like, how do I know this truth? How do I know that truth? And he comes to the conclusion, well, the only way I know is through what I'm, I perceive. So I, I know it by smelling it, tasting it, touching it, seeing it, hearing it, right? That's how we know. But then Descartes takes it another step farther and he goes, well, wait a minute. How can I trust what my perceptions are bringing to me? Because sometimes my perceptions are wrong. Sometimes I look out over a desert and I see a mirage and I think there's water there and there's no water there. So how do I trust my senses? And then he comes to the conclusion, you can't really trust your senses. People in funny farms and nut houses think one thing because their mind is, is confusing what they're hearing. And how do I know that this whole thing's not made up? How do I know you even exist? How do I know you're not a part of my dream? And so Descartes backs up and he says, well, what can I really know? Here's what I can know. I can know that because I question that there must be a questioner. I I can know that because I'm thinking there must be a thinker. And so Descartes came up with that brilliant line, I think therefore I am. Have you heard that before? And for me, that just sort of at the end of the day, What he's saying is, all I can know is that I am because I can't trust anything else. And I'm like, okay, well, Descartes, that's dumb. Okay, that's idiotic. You're not a part of my dream, and my my senses are not that susceptible to self-delusion. And I, you know, but that's what happens. Man, when you pursue that path of rationalism, it's always going to take you into some cul-de-sac of irrational thinking. And, and, and education can educate us into imbecility. I saw this past week two articles online. One was they fired a physics teacher at New York University. Did you see that? And he's one of the most lauded physics professors in the nation. He had retired from another school. He had like I don't know that he won the Nobel Prize, but he won something like that, a bunch of that kind of stuff. He was just decorated as a physics professor. You know why they fired him? Because the students got mad because they weren't making good grades in his class because he was too hard. So they fired the teacher. I saw another thing. They wanted to fire this other teacher. You know what crime she committed? A professor at a university. She committed the crime of saying there's only two genders. And the students wanted her out. Now, wait a minute, before you get too caught up in that and you realize how idiotic that really is to think that there's more than two genders, because I mean, everything about us knows, you have to realize that there are trains of thought and rational pursuits where one idea leads to another idea, which leads to another idea, which leads to another idea, which leads to an idea that makes you think that what you obviously ought to know as a priori truth and fact is in fact to be questioned. And that's what happens with it. And that's where Solomon was. Knowledge is limited. And because of that, you can't construct meaning around it. Pleasure can't produce meaning because we're never satisfied. Uh, There's actually a thing called the hedonistic paradox. And what that means is, is that if my ultimate objective is to experience pleasure, the problem with pleasure is when I go after pleasure, it vanishes like a vapor. 
that pleasure and happiness tend to be more like the tail of the dog that follows me when I go in the right path. But when I go after that thing, the thing that was pleasurable is no longer pleasurable, right? Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a German uh, Jew who was interred in Auschwitz. I think it was Auschwitz. It was one of those. And he was a brilliant psychiatrist, and he decided that while he's in this prison camp, that he's going to use it as a research project to, to understand man at his most base levels. And from that, he produced this book called Man's Search for Meaning. If you can get your hands on a copy, it's brilliant. But he made this statement. He said, happiness must happen. And the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. But when you care about it and you go after it, the value of it is lost. Like we like to eat, but what happens when we eat too much? We've all experienced this at Thanksgiving, right? Mama's cooking the turkey. She's got the turkey going, got the casseroles in the oven, got the pies going. Everything smells so good. And you're like, I'm starving. I got to eat. All right. You know, Thanksgiving's going to be at two o'clock in the afternoon or when it's always at a bad time, you know, it's always after lunch. And so you're trying to hang on, you're trying to hang on. Then finally, you know, they spread it out and you eat this and this, you get a whole plate. And then it's like, oh, but I didn't get any of that. And so I go back to get more of that. Now I've eaten two plates of food. You know, it's like one of those buffet, you know, the, uh, Paul said, I buffet my body and make it my slave. But Baptists think that, that he said, I buffet my body. And, you know, it's not an all you can eat buffet. It's a more than you should eat buffet. And we do that at Thanksgiving. And then about 30 minutes after you eat, what do you do? Don't show me any food. I can't stand the thought of food. Get away from me with that food. I never want to see food again. I don't think I'm ever going to eat again, right? Well, you just filled yourself up with all the pleasure of eating. But in the process of getting all the pleasure of eating, you lost the pleasure of eating. That's the hedonistic paradox. Proverbs 27.7, a person who's full refuses honey, but even bitter food tastes sweet to the hungry. Now, if those are our only two choices under the sun, then which is better, wisdom or folly? Verse 13, I thought wisdom's better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. In other words, it's better to be smart than dumb. I saw a bumper sticker the other day. It said, life is hard, but it's harder on stupid people. <laughs> I like that. Look, I'm not supposed to say stupid, so I'm sorry. But it has a funny bumper sticker. And Solomon said the same thing. He said, if you got to choose, choose wisdom. But in the end, it really doesn't matter what you choose because we have this unsolvable problem. So let's talk about that. We, we've, we've talked about what our options are. We're on, we're on the island. We've got two options. It's wisdom or folly. Um, but we've got a problem. And here's our unsolvable problem, verse 14. For the wise can see where they are going. This is the reason it's better to be smart. But fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Does it really matter what you know or what you've experienced if you die anyway? Let me ask you a question. Which is better, to be a a drunken party animal on the Titanic or to be uh, a brilliant intellectual on the Titanic? Which is better? It doesn't really matter because you're on the Titanic. There's a hole in your boat. You're going down. What difference does it make? And that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. Verse 15, both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? 
This is all so meaningless. We all have the same fate. Madame Curie and Adolf Hitler, same fate. Albert Einstein, Joe Biden. Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi. They all share a common fate. Teacher asked the class, what percentage of people who smoke cigarettes die? All of them. What percentage of people who don't smoke cigarettes die? All of them. What percentage of overweight people die? All of them. What percentage of fitness buffs die? All of them. Because the fact of the matter is, humanity is 100% fatal. The worst thing you could have ever done is take your first breath because the minute you began to breathe, you started to die. That's just life. That's the way it is. A hundred percent of the people who live will die. You're like, okay, we can't live forever. So what can we do here on earth to make it meaningful? Here are some possible solutions that have been tried. Leave a great name. That was the theme of the ancient Vikings. You know, I could do some epic thing that I, my name will always be remembered in history. You know, remember Freshman literature, when they dragged you through Beowulf, remember that horrible experience? Some of y'all are there right now going, oh man, I'm never getting out of Beowulf. But the whole idea behind it was you've got this epic story, this epic tale where you're going to do something so great. And Solomon addresses that and he slams the door shut on him. Verse 16, for the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch in the coming days, all will be forgotten and how the wise man and the fool alike die, and we're going to be forgotten. And even if they do remember you, what difference will it make? You're in the grave. You can't hear applause from the grave. Verse 17, so I came to hate life, because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless and chasing the wind. So what about an inheritance? Maybe that's an option. I'm going to leave an inheritance to my children. There's purpose in that, right? And there is. I mean, the Bible says a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children. But that inheritance is more than money. It's the little things that you instill, the love you give, the the insights that you share. All of that goes into pouring into your kids and pouring into them throughout your whole life. I want to leave that legacy to my son. I want to leave an inheritance to my son. You know what I I really want to be able to do? At the end of my life, when I'm dying, I want to be able to have time to say meaningful things to my sons. I do. And my grandchildren. So there's value in that. But if you think that's going to create lasting meaning, look at verse 18. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I've gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. And this became prophetic for Solomon because his son Rehoboam was a piece of work. And Rehoboam, within months of Solomon's death, had so badly managed the kingdom that they had a civil war and it split apart into two parts and it was never to come together again. He would never enjoy the success of his father. And how often do we see that? You see this 
person that builds this incredible thing and within a generation or two, it begins to show signs of fatigue and within three generations, the cracks are obvious. I came across this, listen to this study. The Williams Group did a 20-year study involving 3,200 families. They found that seven out of 10 super rich families lose their wealth by the end of the second generation. Nine out of 10 lose the fortune by the third generation. And they say by the fourth generation, it's almost always 100% gone. So leaving an inheritance isn't a great idea. What about hard work and be a success? Keep reading verse 20. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. Have y'all been to the Biltmore Mansion? We went to the Biltmore Mansion, which was part of the inheritance of the Vanderbilt fortune. And basically, the guy took his entire inheritance and built a house. That's what Solomon's talking about. So what do, you, what, what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Because hard work comes at a price. Look at what he says. Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It's all meaningless. And, and one of the things I heard a guy say was that if you want to be a leader, you've got to be willing to give up a good night's sleep. And, and of, of the, the men and women I know who are very successful in life, they all struggle with one thing, sleep. They have a hard time sleeping. I remember reading about uh, Rockefeller, John Rockefeller. At the end of his life, his body was so racked by the stress and anxiety that he had lived with all of his life that he could only eat very small portions of food. This guy with all the money in all the world to buy all the food he'd ever want could barely survive. Death mocks everything. That's what Solomon comes back to. So what do we do? Shift the focus. Solomon, finally, he backs away from all this stuff. He sort of returns to his roots and to that intimacy he knew with the Father. You know, there was a time in his life where he was so intimate with God. God told him, Solomon, ask anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And God said, man, that's, that's the best thing you could have asked for. And God was walking with Solomon and Solomon with God. But then something happened, and he got tripped up, and he lost his way. And I don't know, he got a hole in his boat. And before you know it, he got grounded on an island. But now he's thinking back. And here's what he comes up with. Real joy comes through experiencing God. Look at verse 24. So I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. Then I realized. It's almost like he's coming out of a coma. It's like the, the prodigal son, you know, uh, he came to himself. Then I realized all this stuff's from God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please Him. And man, all of a sudden, I'm back to Psalm 37, 4, my, one of my favorite verses, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. You know, that word delight in the Hebrew means to be made moldable. So if I allow myself to be molded and I allow the desires of my heart to be molded, then my desires become God's desires. And when I want what God wants, He gives me all I want. And so God begins to fill me up with those very things that I was after in, in the beginning. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please Him. This too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Do you feel the focus shift, the transition? And I see three quick ideas I want to leave with you. First is simplify. He said, eat and drink and be satisfied with your labor. Stop looking ahead. 
Stop always living the next thing. Stop being like a little kid at Christmas, tearing through a mound of toys, never taking the time to enjoy the satisfaction of the one you have. Look around and enjoy what God has already given you and value that. Man, God was always telling the people to do that. Every time in the Old Testament when they had some great victory, everybody wanted to run on to the next big thing, and he would go, whoa, 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 stop. Gather some stones, put some rocks up. Let's remember what I've done. Let's live in this moment, and let's get the full satisfaction out of every joy. That's what Solomon's saying. Then recognize the gifts of God. Then I realized, 24, that these pleasures are from the hand of God. And verse 26, for God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please Him. Psalm 37, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Do you really know what it is to live in the moment and to experience the blessing of God and to recognize it for what it is? It's a gift and to taste it, experience it fully, and then experience the intimacy of God. The problem that I see in most of modern Christianity is that we come at it as if it were contractual. I call this propositional faith. It's as if Christianity were a set of propositions that you agree to. Do you believe in God? Yes. Check the box. Do I believe that Jesus died for my sins? Check, yes. Do I believe that if I receive him, I'll be, I'll be saved and, and can go to heaven? Check, yes. And what I'm doing is I'm agreeing to a set of propositions. Uh, I agree to that, I agree to that, I agree to that. And, but but at, at the end of the day, I'm not walking in intimacy in the experience of God. And so I like to talk about a thing, not propositional faith, but prepositional faith. You know what a preposition is, don't you? In, on, at, by, with, right? Those are all the prepositions. There's more of them than I know. I, when, you, when you experience the intimacy with God, it moves from a propositional faith to a prepositional faith. And I hear the retreat guys talk about this all the time. They'll say, you know, I was sitting in the, in the balcony for three years, for four years, for five years. I was at church whenever I wasn't doing something else. And, and they said, all I was doing was checking boxes. Checking boxes, checking box. How many times have you heard that, Jeff? Check the box, check the box. You guys remember that, Matt? That's propositional faith. I agree with that proposition. But prepositional faith works like this. I'm with God. He's in me. He's on me. He's over me. He's above me. He's beside me. He's between me and my problem. And that's where the power lies. And that's where the joy is. Experiencing God. He doesn't want you to agree with Him. He wants you to walk with Him. Leonard Sweet said, today the gospel must be incarnated in a postmodern culture where people are not so much craving belief as experience. People are longing for a genuine experience of God. It's no longer enough to simply give Christ one's intellectual ascent. We must taste and see that the Lord is good. The church must come out of its cognitive, conceptual bias and into more experiential, perceptual modes of worship. What does that mean? Here's what it means. You need to stop spending all your time trying to make life more pleasant 
on the island and fix the boat so you can go home. That's what it means. And the direct application works like this. If you are a believer and you genuinely trust the belief that you have in Christ, but you have come to realize all I'm really doing is agreeing, but I'm not really walking. It's time to stop agreeing with God and walk with Him. And that affects your daily life, not just once on Sunday, check the box, I'm gone, so that I can figure out what I'm going to do to give my life meaning for the rest of the week when I live on the island. But it's walking with God on a daily basis to allow Him to fix that hole in your boat, which is that hole in your heart, so that you experience Him, and He's on you, and He's in you, and He's with you, and He's beside you, and He's over you. That's prepositional faith. But the other direct application is for those of you who are without Christ. You you know. You might have even agreed, but you never really were changed. And it's time to quit monkeying around with trying to make the island more comfortable. It's time to let the Holy Spirit fix the hole in your boat, which is in your heart, and to heal you of your sin and your hurt and your shame and your sorrow and all those other things that are crippling your experience. You will never find meaning until you find it in Him. That's the conclusion of Solomon 3,000 years ago. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Nothing has changed since then. So you ready to get healed today? Let's pray together. Believer, do you have a prepositional faith or a propositional faith? Are you just agreeing with God or are you walking with Him? Why don't you just say this to the Father right now? Heavenly Father, I want to walk with you every day. And it's going to start in a quiet time. Every morning in the Word, just time alone with you, seeking your counsel. And when I struggle, I'm going to turn to you for prayer. And when I'm hurting, I'm going to turn to you for healing. And you're going to be my source. So Father, fix my boat. Repair my heart. If you don't know Jesus, here's your prayer. Father, I need you to fix me. I need you to fill me. I need to get the boat fixed so I can go home. And so I give my life fully to you. I'm not just agreeing with a set of propositions. I thank you that Christ died for me. I thank you that I've that by giving my faith to you, my life to you by faith, that you come into my life and change me. But Father, I, I, I want to trust in you. And so I give all that I understand about me to all that I understand about you. And I ask you to be my Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wisdom of Solomon. Thank you that you have shown us through these pages what doesn't work. And we thank you that you've also shown us what does. Father, forgive us for so many years being as if we were the professor on the island doing everything but but the main thing. This morning we do the main thing. Let your Holy Spirit be free in this place. 
And I pray, Father, that you would fix our hearts so that we could, get, we could head home. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.